0: is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. Very interesting guest today on Church and Culture. Many of our listeners probably know his name or probably know, are familiar with his writings or the magazines he's edited. Joseph Bottom, Dr. Joseph Bottom, who uh, is from South Dakota, actually lives in the Black Hills of South Dakota as we speak. I'm going to call him Jody because I've known him for many years. He is an author. speaker, He is a very well-established and noted figure in the world, not just of Catholic uh, writers and journalists, but of religious writers and cultural critics in general. Uh, He's published in journals from The Atlantic to The Washington Post, and uh, the New York Times describes him uh, as a poet and critic and essayist with a sideline in history and philosophy. His name would be mandatory on any objective list short of public intellectual in America. And National Review calls Jody the poetic voice of modern Catholic intellectual work. I think that's right. His work has shaped minds of a generation. He has his most recent book, which came out this year, is entitled An Anxious Age, The Post Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. We're going to talk about that a little later in the show. But I think he's best known for having been editor of the journal First Things for a number of years. He was also literary editor of the Weekly Standard for six or seven years, uh, and now is writing very comfortably and very, I think, uh, successfully from his, his home and his home state of South Dakota. Jody, uh, welcome to Church and Culture.
1: Oh, Deal, thanks for having me. I owe you, you know, because the first start I got, really, was when Deal Hudson proposed that I write a literature column for a magazine he was editing at the time.
0: I actually Uh, remember that, but it was such an obvious thing to recommend, I really can't take much credit for it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I have this place in my heart reserved for you because of that, because I was young and, and didn't have a lot of opportunities, and it was a wonderful occasion.
0: Well, thank you for remembering that, and I, I remember many good times we had when uh, you were here in Washington, D.C. at the Weekly Standard. I also remember stealing one of your handkerchiefs, but I did pay you <laughs> back for that. So, Jody, uh, you know a lot about the world of religious journalism in general. Uh, first things, although not being specifically a Catholic the journal, had a strong Catholic component, but it really had a, also strong uh, evangelical uh Jewish and I suppose even some mainline protestant uh elements. So you've been in, you've been in all these world these concentric circles of religious journalism. But and you and I have specifically had conversations about what the ideal kind of magazine or journal would be for Catholics uh which of course we decided cost too much money. But uh where do you think we stand at this moment in time uh, in regards to the secular coverage of religion? And, of course, you we both know there are very few uh, newspapers or magazines that have uh, full-time reporters assigned uh, to that beat, but where do we stand?
1: Well, journalism itself is such a mess uh,
0: <laughs>
1: that... You know, the idea, I remember, that you and I batted around years ago about uh, starting a glossy, high-level magazine uh, that would take religion seriously. Uh, I think, you know, there was a moment for that, uh, but I think that moment's passed. And part of it is that journalism itself has become a partisan endeavor. Uh, It's, you know, done advocacy. Journalism has taken over all journalism, practically speaking. Uh, And it it infuses the news articles, the the distinctions that used to exist between uh, editorializing and news reporting seem to have broken down. Uh, and I'm not sure that a kind of general interest magazine that took religion seriously, and took Catholicism seriously in particular, uh, has any chance today. In fact, I know that it doesn't because of this breakdown. Uh, one of the results of that, you know, shows up in religious journalism. Uh, one of the results of the, the breakdown of all journalism shows up in religious journalism. You remember in the Shoes of the Fisherman. You remember
0: sure, that Anthony Quint-
1: early sixties, right? Uh, uh, by Morris West. You know, it was made into a movie.
0: Who was a very so good they, Catholic writer?
1: Yeah, and a central yeah. figure in it. In fact, the kind of the narrative figure around whom the plot turns is a Vatican reporter, is an American who's sent by a newspaper, which is standing in for the New York Times, uh, a fictionalized version of the New York Times, to be the full-time reporter of things in the Vatican for a major American newspaper. Mm -hmm. And that kind of figure, those Vaticanists, they were called, uh, uh, is gone. I mean, there there are a handful of people I like a great deal, uh, beginning with John Allen. Uh, I trust his reporting. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I trust all of his uh, uh, opinions when he editorializes. Well, he's very well not, informed, and
0: he right, writes well. And he's well. got the
1: good distinction between mm-hmm. just reporting and presenting a thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I trust his reporting. Uh, but you, there was a time in which there would have been many such figures. Uh, kind of
0: the, only, the only other Vatican, specifically Vatican, writer I can think of is, is our mutual friend Sandro Magister, who writes in Italian.
1: Right. Uh, and the Times doesn't really have one, and the Wall Street Journal doesn't really have one. And in fact, the Herald Tribune, which is the, the large American newspaper in Europe co-owned by um, the New York Times, uh, and is the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post, are they the co owners of it? Uh, regardless, the, uh, the Herald Tribune doesn't have a major Vatican report.
0: The International it's Herald the Herald.
1: European newspaper. Right. And that's a problem. What we get then is everybody poring over, you know, the Catholic News Service reports, looking for occasions hmm. to editorialize.
0: Right, and the Catholic news service reports are often editorializing in disguise themselves.
1: Right. Uh, Now, I cut them a lot of slack for that, not enough to forgive them, but but still (laughs) enough to understand it as part of the human condition, which is it's a response to the way everything, every little item in their news feed would get picked up and used for partisan purposes, often anti-Catholic partisan purposes.
0: Yes. Uh, And and of course, and to
1: spin the news...
0: The big picture, as you and I have discussed before, is that a lot of Catholic journalism is of this nature. In other words, it is published by a Catholic entity, whether it be a chancery, a bishop, uh, by uh, the USCCB, the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, which uh, runs the Catholic News Service. And oftentimes what is reported is, not so much news as it is a kind of public relations of see what's going on here, what's going on, uh, know that we're do diligently doing this work, and and that's fine. We need to know that, uh, but the Catholic News Service offers that extra dimension, uh, which is missing from you know most mainline journalism of I mean, attempting to offer the general public uh, actual fresh new news and insight into what's going on in, in the Catholic world.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, but we don't have any mainstream media big picture guys. No. Uh, and who are doing real, you know, what,
0: what old guys like me used to call shoe leather reporting. Yeah, we actually should have those jobs. If those jobs actually existed, you should be at CBS and I could be at NBC and we could be dueling heads, uh, when it comes to Catholic matters. But I'm really not kidding. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, uh, is not there. Even in the general religious world, they'll call in somebody like you or me or Ralph Reed or whatever to get, you know, three minutes on, you know, on camera for this or that issue. Uh, which is not, is not made integral. Now the only exception I can think of is uh, Father Jonathan Morris's position at Fox News as a official Fox commentator. He's on there a lot and he's so much so that his voice has kind of been melded into the religion and morality coverage of Fox News. which is a good thing. George Weigel, who's you know a great guy and deeply knowledgeable, uh, but
1: but when George is on TV or George writes a short column, it's pre-digested and editorialized. It's not news. Yeah,
0: yeah, and his and his you know he doesn't exactly you know jump off the camera, whereas someone like Father Jonathan, does, it looks very good on camera, and he's very winning. He has a very winning way. And like it or not, uh, whenever we go on camera, we all have to deal with those realities.
1: And that's certainly true. You know, I mean, I I just last month had drinks with an old newspaper man who uh, was indulging the, the traditional newspaper sneer at bloggers. Uh, but he was old (laughs) enough to add to it uh, an even older and more traditional sneer of newspapermen at what he called the White Teeth Brigade of television commentators.
0: Well, that may actually hold up. Uh, I'm talking with Joseph Bottom, former editor at First Things, former literary editor at Weekly Standard, and presently his latest book is entitled An Anxious Age, the Post-Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of America. Uh, Jody is simply one of the, uh, guys to go to when it comes to cultural matters, uh, from a religious or specifically Catholic point of view. He's, uh, going, to, we're going to talk to him later, uh, in another show about literature and literary matters, Catholic, uh, novels and so forth. He and I have talked, discussed this before. We were, I had him on a my T V show at EWTN many years ago where he jabbed me with the line there's no such thing as a Catholic novel. We'll definitely come back to that later on. What are what do you think of the uh these other Catholic journalists? And I think you and I have been part of that world. Uh you know, First Things had a point of view, Crisis that I that I published and edited had a point of view. And of course there are still uh Certain Catholic magazines in print, none have a very big circulation or a very big audience. I would say that moving to the Internet uh, certainly helped crisis keep its audience when I when I made that move. And I noticed that most Catholic magazines, with the exception of Inside the Vatican, have made that move fairly successfully. But, you know, one thing you said earlier about how all journalism has sort of become a partisan voice it, it sort of makes the uniqueness of these Catholic journals and magazines and blogs and so forth that we've been a part of less unique now.
1: Yeah it has I, there's another effect I want to analyze uh, deal and it, it has to do with I mean you know Catholic journalism in the United States, Catholic writing was always a traditionally a ghetto activity. It was done within the community. Which was often a deeply ethnic community, uh, and the uh, but it's in the what's called the Catholic Renaissance it begins in the forties and really reaches its peak in the fifties. These Catholic journals, I'm thinking here of the Pilot, of Commonweal, of Thought that was edited at Fordham, uh, where you were. Right. Uh, these these magazines and intellectual journals by the sheer force of their very intra-Catholic endeavors, forced themselves onto public notice. So W.H. Auden was sending poetry to Commonweal. Right. Uh, you know, and these major writers who have a religious sensibility are understanding that the, po- the go-to place is this formerly ghetto and still extremely intra Catholic, uh, set of publications? They were just so good that if you had any literary sense, you couldn't ignore them.
0: Well, Commonweal had a very, uh, significant place in the New York literary world in the, in the 50s, maybe even to the 60s. Thomas Merton, of course, was, wrote for Commonweal. And when they reviewed a the novel, it usually ended up as a blurb on the back of the of the novel on the book jacket,
1: right? And the uh, you know, Commonweal ran uh, was a weekly in those days, and it ran movie reviews and theater reviews. And there was a time this is the uh, when Jean Cars, who wrote Please Don't Eat the Daisies, right, uh, her the, husband, the, the,
0: uh, the wife of Walt Kerr, the, the right. New York Times theater critic.
1: And Walter Kerr came out of the theater department at Catholic University, which had at that time maybe the premier theater department in the country. And it, there was a moment there. There were still seven newspapers in New York, and the theater critic at every single one had gotten his start as the Commonweal theater critic.
0: Isn't that isn't that interesting? Uh, now, who course, the, you know. was Ag uh, a critic for Commonweal? A theater, a movie critic for Commonweal, James Ag.
1: No, he was already to you know he was writing for Time Magazine. Okay. He was doing his real movie reviews. It seems to he me I recall that movie some, note,
0: some name was was their movie critic. Uh, I can't right, recall
1: but, uh, you know who did write some for them, occasional movie reviews for them was Graham Greene.
0: Well, I think that says it all right there, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean,
0: if you have what? Graham Greene writing for you, then you're you're thought of as pretty highly as a as a magazine.
1: Now the that's and so that 's my picture of Catholic uh publications as they could be uh, you know where they were very intra catholic and yet somehow their work was so great uh, in a sheer cultural significance that it forced itself upon the attention of, of
0: do you think culture. that's still possible joseph I mean it is still possible that uh, the secular elites uh would be willing to recognize the quality of work coming from a specifically Catholic uh, organ, or would their prejudices get in the way?
1: I think that's that their prejudice would get in the way, and that's matched with a second problem, which is that the Catholic journals that we're describing, as they exist now, are no longer ghetto publications. What they become is partisan publication.
0: Yes, I agree completely.
1: Which is something different. So the combination of an outside sneer and an interior defensiveness creates a Catholic literary world, uh, journalistic world that simply isn't capable of the kind of feats that that. And,
0: and was. also, I would add that was. the the uh, journalistic standard, the bar, has lowered a great deal over the last ten years. Right.
1: Now, you know, you take someone like, uh, well, I won't name a name, but there was a, uh, a very successful novelist uh, who had been brought up a Catholic, uh, eventually came back to the Church, uh, and always had Catholic sympathies. And I tried to get him to write for me, and he wouldn't do it on the grounds that uh, being identified by that world as a Catholic was too toxic.
0: I ran into the same thing, Joseph, when I was at crisis. Uh, I would meet, and I, we probably are talking about the same person, but there were a group of Catholic writers who had made it in the secular world, but... Uh, the few I talked to, and one one was had a, his from a Hispanic Catholic background, a Cuban Catholic background. Well,
1: this is probably the same guy.
0: That yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Mambo Kings sing songs of love, and so I. Puerto uh, Velas that I was thinking. Yeah, about. and he just you know he loved the idea that we had such uh, a magazine going and so forth, but he couldn't risk his career options by being seen in it.
1: And that's that's the the fear of the of the outside sneer yes. uh, there's also the breakdown of you know these the kind of confidence that that uh transcends de- defensiveness that the old Catholic establishment had uh you know I'm thinking of Flannery O'Connor, who was astonishingly unapologetic
0: yes uh, on his directions
1: yes but but also she. And I love that in her. But I, what I love just as much is that she didn't have any of the partisan defensiveness. She was merely con No, she
0: despised that, actually. Right. You know, and, and like, it's like Maritan in Art of Scholasticism has that, that chapter on religious art, which he completely dismisses as being worthy from, a, from the point of view of the virtue of art. Uh, there's something about as flannery would say there's something about religious art that often tries to you know put it in your face and make it so clear and make the moral so direct that you you know that it kind of beats you over the head and uh, flannery would have nothing of that as you know
1: oh no she had a, there was a I'm, remember, I'm remembering a passage where in one of her letters where she sneers at this priest these were in the days when you know, uh, world—the po- population explosion was, was first bubbling up, and some p- priest wrote this ameliorative uh, essay or column for one of the newspapers, major newspapers, about how you know there really aren't all that many people in the world. If if we put the whole population of the world on Long Island, it would be no more crowded than a cocktail party. Do you remember this sort of trope?
0: Yeah, well, and it was yeah. and it, population well, here, bomb and its aftermath. Right. And so he was, you know, he was
1: doing the, oh, you know, we Catholics aren't really so bad because the population explosion isn't really so bad. Uh, And Flannery O'Connor's response was that she would have none of it. She said, that's, you know, that's partisanship. Her her response was, if contraception is wrong, then contraception is wrong, even if we're standing on each other's heads.
0: And it, of course, tell remind our listeners of that famous that famous story of Flannery O'Connor at a dinner party in New York with Mary McCarthy, which I think uh, well, even makes that the,
1: she'd won uh, one of the major literary prizes, and so she was brought up to New York. Mary McCarthy, who was Mary McCarthy, was not only a fine writer in her own way. Notice uh, the way I qualified that deal in her own way, right? Uh, but and that's uh, true, and that's true, yeah. But she was also a, uh, uh, what's the word I want, an organizer. You know, Mm -hmm. it was Mary McCarthy who brought Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir over from France for their first visit to the United States. It was Mary McCarthy who put together the crowd that became the Partisan Review. It was Mary McCarthy who brought Flannery O'Connor up to New York so that the crowd could meet her, the literary crowd of New York. And the story is that the dinner, one of them, was with Mary McCarthy's encouragement was looking to find some kind of way to, uh, you know, address the topic of Flannery O'Connor's Catholicism, and she said to O'Connor, uh, "I think the the host, the transubstantiation, I think it's a beautiful symbol." Mm-hmm. And Flannery O'Connor is reported to have replied, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. I've to got enough it. symbols in my life.
0: <laughs> I would have loved to have the video cameras running right about <laughs> then. But, you know, I, w- I, 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 I hope, and it's it's my belief, that Mary McCarthy knew exactly what she was saying to her.
1: Yeah. I mean, she. I think she was trying to, she was a woman who, uh, she had that wicked streak that Norman Mailer once said mm-hmm. is necessary in a woman who's going to be one of the truly great hostesses.
0: you know you're bringing up uh, something that's germane to you know our next conversation, but it's also germane to this one in the sense that secular journalism seems to have adopted a handful of angry Catholics to put it a certain way like Mary McCarthy who let it be known that they have a Catholic upbringing, that they've been shaped, usually harmed in some fundamental way, that they have escaped and uh, now are better for having moved on intellectually and spiritually. But yet the media will go back to them over and over again to opine on this church that they have in a certain way rejected. That may be too hard. Uh, so Mary McCarthy is a type... That I think is now fairly uh, easy to find in in all of the major media platforms. That is the Catholic who has rejected the Church, who is seen as a Catholic expert on the Catholic Church.
1: Yeah, and there's that you know the way you keep your credentials uh, in as that type of person is every fourth or fifth column you express a little bit of sadness about how it's gone, and you just can't believe it anymore.
0: Who, do you, who would you put in that category? If, I don't want to put you on the spot to name names, but... Well, you know who I would exempt, uh, interestingly, is Gary Wills. I would, too. He's just too good. <laughs> he's
1: yeah, just I don't too think good. He, he's, he's. I mean, I, look, I think in many ways, to use to use the technical vocabulary I learned at the Weekly Standard, in many ways, I think he's a bad guy.
0: Yes, but uh, but he's but so smart that I keep and, reading his and stuff. Conscious,
1: right? And self-conscious.
0: Yeah. He's too
1: self-aware to play that game.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now there, you know, he's got plenty of issues with the church, uh, but but they're they seem to me honest issues.
0: Yes, and a, you know, there's I, I've in in my old age, so to speak. Uh, you knew me. I think you've known me since I was kind of a. Feisty, middle-aged, conservative, Catholic, conservative convert, but I've looked. I see things now more as uh, inclusive. In other words, I look more for what I can learn from a Gary Wills than what I can point out as being heretical or not orthodox. I I don't care as much now that Gary Will, Wills is who he is because he's so bright. So well educated, so cultured. There's there's much to learn from. Right. And there, there
1: are other writers, I think, who who escape, even if they've got uh, serious issues with the church, uh, escape this tr- this pose that we've described. But there are far too many from uh, James Carroll
0: on. Who? Well, James Carroll. Let's let's contrast Gary Wells with James Carroll. He's he's uh, he turns out rather large volumes re- about the Catholic Church and related Catholic matters. Uh, is is there a good reason why I don't feel the same about him as I do about Gary Wills?
1: Um, yes, but I'm, you know, charity demands that I not really express in
0: public. Okay, well, we, it's a good time. We're going to take a short break. <laughs> and all of you who are listening, please uh, hang around for a short message and come back we're going to keep talking to Joseph Bottom. I'm back with Jody Bottom, who you probably know as former editor of First Things, author of many books, and his latest one that has been received very, very uh, positively is entitled An Anxious Age, the Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. In that book, Jody argues, and this is someone else's summation, that members of the nation's elite class are the spiritual heirs of mainline Protestantism, and that this class, that is of mainline Protestantism, has triumphed over Catholics and evangelicals in the culture wars. Is that a fair summary of your book?
1: Yeah. You know, if, if it had to be reduced to a, to a uh, single line. To a single line the, the only element I would add is I think the result is that we have an enormously spiritualized politics. In which everybody, especially the liberal elites, but even the conservatives, are treating politics as though it were a church where they were going to find their salvation.
0: Perfectly, and I and I want to have you back for another show and just do your book. So we're going to hold off on that because I need I need to read it before we actually do an interview on it. But meanwhile, I encourage all of my uh, listeners out there to go on Amazon and look for Joseph Bottoms' books. This book, again, let me give you the title. An anxious age, the post Protestant ethic and the spirit of America's received marvelous reviews. Now your I guess friend and mentor, is mentor fair to say, Father Richard John Newhouse? Oh yeah. Okay. You know,
1: I mean I you know I, I lived with Richard, I worked for Richard. There was one point at which Father Newhouse offered to become my confessor. And I thought that it was just, the relationship was getting way too close.
0: Yeah, I, that, you know, he's, you, can't, you don't want your boss being your confessor. You don't want the guy across <laughs> the hall being your confessor. You're
1: right. He's my boss. He's my landlord and my confessor. That was a step too far, even for me.
0: Now you had a you had a story to tell about what uh, Father Newhouse how he described these sort of ex Catholic experts on the Catholic Church. How did he describe them?
1: Well, Richard had this, uh, you know, of course he was such a wordsmith, uh, and he, he looked at these figures, whether they had come out of Catholic backgrounds or evangelical backgrounds, these figures that had come or Jewish backgrounds, for that matter, Orthodox Jewish backgrounds, and he looked at the way they emerged from that and would write about their past, and he, he described them as suffering from uh, what he called just barely escaped syndrome. <laughs> and they would, they would describe themselves in their childhoods as this you know, world of oppression that, that had almost daunted their imaginations and their spirits, and yet somehow they had summoned the will to escape it.
0: And there are a lot of film directors in that category, like Neil Jordan, who constantly come back to the Catholic Church as a topic, for their films, but then we'll in the interview uh, prior to the film opening, we'll talk about how damaged they were by the church. Uh, but they keep coming back to it over and over again,
1: right? And you know, the other element, as I mentioned before, but I, I want to emphasize, is you keep your credentials that way. Uh, James Wood, who was a fantastic literary critic, is a good example of this. He was brought up in a very, very uh, eccentric and tight evangelical community in England, uh, and he has tons of this. Oh, I just barely escaped this soul crushing. You know, I, I've read his
0: his China. books on on the novel. Yeah, uh, and I didn't realize that he was from that background.
1: Yeah, I know. It's interesting. It's one of the reasons he has knowledge to bring. You know, of religious mm-hmm. things. But the other element that that he adds, and that many others add is that every so often you have to do what Matthew Arnold did at the end of Dover Beach. you have to ex of that great poem mm-hmm. you have to express this sadness that you can 't believe it anymore.
0: You and I are going to read that poem aloud here uh, before this this particular interview' is <laughs> over, so bring it up uh, unless you have it memorized, bring it up on your computer screen or whatever. grab it from the shelves, be ready to. We're going to do a kind of antiphonal reading of that because um, I love that poem. I'm so glad you brought it up. And I love Samuel Barber's setting of it. So we're not going to try to sing it, but we are going to read it. And looking at James Wood's uh, biog- uh, list of books, he has a book against God from Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I wonder That was liter- Flannery O'Connor's publisher. I wonder what Flannery thought of that, looking down from heaven.
1: Well, FSG never knew what to do with its religious authors. You remember the president of FSG, of farrar strauss was um, bothered when uh, Walker Percy won the National Book
0: Award. I'm talking about Bob Giroux? First book, yeah. Bob Giroux uh, was bothered by that? They wanted other writers of theirs. Ha! I did not know that. That sort of uh, surprises me. I mean, the panel that picked it Mm -hmm. uh,
1: was uh, it it wasn't the moviegoer wasn't on their list, the short list that they'd been told to consider. Uh, What's her name? Uh, Robert Lowell's ex-wife, Jean Stafford.
0: Yes, who'd had
1: a bestseller with Boston.
0: And by the way, our 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 listeners should know that uh, Robert Lowell, Catholic. In those uh, days, yeah, a Catholic yes. convert who Again, then fell away yes. from the church. Yes. But and uh, also the one man, <coughs> the one of, one of two men that Flannery O'Connor fell in love with. <laughs> he
1: was uh, he he when he was young, he had that look and and that tortured Puritan soul that came from the real. Oh, he was very handsome young man,
0: very handsome young man. Uh, but I, uh, I saw pictures of I him from when he was with was Flannery at the, in, in Iowa. Yeah, yeah, uh, the. Uh, Going back to Father Newhouse, it seems to me that, <clears throat> uh, Father Newhouse left a lot, a, a much larger imprint on American culture than he's given credit for. Uh, you think that's true? Uh, I think,
1: uh, if anybody could have pulled off the project oh. that he was endeavoring to do, uh, as he came out of the you know, lefty world of protest against Vietnam uh, and eventually became you know, one of the central figures in neoconservatism. Right. If anybody could have pulled off the neoconservative move in American politics, and particularly the Catholic one, That was, that saw that the main, old mainline consensus of America was dying and we needed a new infusion of Catholic, of Christian vocabulary.
0: And and by the way, what you mean by neoconservative is simply the, the liberal who sort of gets mugged by reality. Um, Right. I mean, yes.
1: It got picked up to talk about, you know, supporters for the Iraq war.
0: Yeah. I mean, for example, I couldn't be called that even though I took over a magazine from Michael Novak because I never, was a serious liberal. I mean, I was. Right. I was a sentimental graduate student when I was at Princeton Theological Seminary, <laughs> which, and I worked for McGovern, but that was purely uh, an accident.
1: Well, you know, Mary uh, Mary Eberstatt, who's a very fine Catholic writer, uh, writes nonfiction sure. uh, and just has a
0: statistician, theory. so forth. Yes.
1: Yeah, she's, got, she's really got the whole package.
0: Demography, uh, abortion, all that kind of thing. A few
1: years ago, she looked back at uh, that old collection of uh, socialists who had turned against communism and banded together. Stephen Spender is one of these people. Irving Kristol is another. Uh, and they published a book of individual essays. About their decision to reject communism.
0: Yeah, what was that called?
1: Uh, it was called the God that failed.
0: That's right. That was a very popular book, influential book.
1: Right. And Mary Eberstadt a few years ago looked back at that and thought, "Let's do a collection of you know <laughs> of uh, conservative writers who uh, you know." And I'll and I'll title it. Or she titled it, "Why I Turned Right." Mm-hmm. And these essays were all supposed to be about how this conservative or that conservative came to be a conservative. Uh, and, what we, and it was, you know, P.J. O'Rourke and uh, Rich Lowry, and from who was the editor of National Review, me, a couple other people. Were you a liberal once? No, well, that see, that's the that's exactly where I'm going. Okay, that so, the book turned out not to have a single conversion moment in it. Right, because you couldn't you couldn't put together that this was the generation younger than your we generation and a half younger than the Michael Novaks, Irving Crystals, uh, Richard John Newhouses, who had made that transition from liberal to conservative. And so she
0: tried yeah. to spin it. I'm looking at the list. I don't see anybody on it who, who I think was a, ever a liberal. No, exactly. You couldn't put the book together
1: that she wanted. Now, I think the essays in it were very fine.
0: You just change one one word in the title, and you got an accurate <laughs> yeah. book. You know, why, uh, why I am. But uh,
1: in her mind, it was formed on the model of the God who
0: failed. Yeah, right.
1: Uh, and so, you know, she wanted it to be conversion memoirs, and of course, those days are gone, but Richard John Newhouse is a good example of someone who did have a conversion.
0: And Michael Novak as well. And
1: Michael Novak and the rest of them. And that's neoconservative in the old-fashioned use of the word. Yeah. And it, that project, specifically the Catholic end of it, that Richard wanted to pull off, uh, which is kind of, based in large part on Michael Novak's The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism was mm-hmm. an attempt to substitute uh, Catholicism in its its rich moral and theological vocabulary for the collapse of Christian culture meaning Protestant culture here in America.
0: You know, I it's interesting this this is a topic that I I go back to in my mind because it was very confusing for many people when I took over crisis. They assumed I was a neoconservative. And at some point, some, some idiot blasted me publicly about it. And I, I wrote a column where I, I explained why I wasn't a neoconservative, but I was a conservative, but that conservatism was grounded in Aristotelian and Thomistic metaphysics as it came through me to, through Jacques Méritain, who was a political liberal, although I came to different conclusions. Uh, can you sort of tell a similar story of the origins of your conservatism?
1: You know, I didn't really have uh, any politics at all. And I was just in graduate school one day, and I looked up, and I thought, they're killing babies.
0: Ah, that was it then.
1: And it was it was abortion.
0: By the way, I I didn't have any politics at all either. I mean, I, I discovered aesthetics, ethics, and metaphysics. The only reason I got into politics is because Karl Rove called me out of the blue. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, I wasn't looking for 1930s that.
1: The 30s generation, too, had this kind of very highly intellectualized conversions into Catholicism. This, I'm thinking of Thomas Merton, of course, but also Avery Dulles.
0: Yeah, I mean, Avery whom Dulles we both is, knew very well. What a wonderful man.
1: And Cardinal Dulles' early memoir about his conversion, called A Testimony to yes. Grace, uh, is really... Really, really fascinating deal because essentially he says, uh, I was studying philosophy. I saw that uh, medieval. And he came
0: from the mainline Protestantism you're talking right, about right, in your
1: real book. real blue blood, mainline yeah. Protestant. Uh, but, uh, but that testimony of grace essentially says, I was at Harvard, I was reading philosophy, I saw that medieval philosophy, uh, had the clearest and truest account of the world. I then understood that in order to accept the, uh, philosophy, I had to accept the theology, so I became a Catholic. And as a, as a conversion <laughs> memoir, it's so intellectualized. Uh, it's really wonderful in its way and an expression of that generation
0: yeah um but what you're saying is that uh your your response to the f- the fact of widespread abortion is what got your your political slash conservative wheels turning
1: yeah I mean and and it's uh, as i as I put in my own essay in the book uh it, it was kind of hard to describe or even understand how I said, okay, here's where I draw a line abortion is bad. And then five years later, I find myself sitting at a Republican National Convention meeting next to Bill Buckley.
0: That was was a nice way to uh, start.
1: You know, how you end up down that road, you know, is uh, is really hard to say.
0: You you bring up Buckley's name. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is precisely the kind of Catholic intellectual slash journalists that we are missing today in terms of having a real big audience the way he did. Right.
1: Here's a story for you that, that illustrates that point of yours exactly. Uh, before you started National Review, uh, Buckley made an effort through James Burnham, the great political theorist, mm-hmm. to contact his brother, Philip Burnham, who was editor of Commonweal, on the idea that Buckley would buy Commonweal.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And the the might-have-been picture of an alternate universe in which Bill Buckley is the editor of a Catholic intellectual journal uh, is a fascinating one. Of course, it also speaks to the importance of Commonweal in those days. Uh, In the book, there's a whole section on Bill Buckley. In which I read him in a way that I don't think anyone else ever has ever done, as uh, emerging from the Catholic Renaissance and as, in essence, a Catholic Renaissance writer.
0: Yeah, he was. He was, I, I suppose, the last living representative mm-hmm. of that era. Of that Ian generation. Ralph McInerney. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, see, they, uh, uh, and did they pass away about the same time? about the same time. That
1: was a very hard year in which we lost, or two-year period in which we lost Bill Buckley and Ralph and Richard John Newhouse and Avery Dulles. And it was just, I felt like I was going to one funeral after another, that, that couple-year period in there. Uh, but the uh, but the key, I think, is that, uh, as I analyze Buckley and read him as a writer in the Catholic Renaissance, that all of these writers, including the ones who were just doing journalism, were They had what I call in the book a room with a view, right. which is to say they had a firm place to stand, and that meant their attention could be turned outward on the world. What happened to the next generation, and has become our problem since we inherited it, is that the Michael Novaks and the Gary Wills, um, they turned their attention in on the
0: Church. Bill Buckley never wrote about the Church. Very, very Well, he wrote that one book on, on, right. on his explaining his, his faith and, and sort of rationally defending it, and he did it in the form of interviews, if you recall.
1: Right, and it was also one of 83 books.
0: Yeah, he, I mean, it was the only book. Just,
1: the amount of attention that he paid to Catholicism was astonishingly low for such a major Catholic writer. And I I read that as a way of saying that for Buckley's generation, that Catholic Renaissance generation, the world was secure, and they could look out, or I'm sorry, their their own place was secure, and they could look out on the world. I say they had a room with a view. Once the attention gets turned back in on the Church, major Catholic writers like Michael Novak and Gary Wills have to spend all their time talking about the Church. And it's A basic rule of organizations deal that you get a lot more done and you have a lot more effect when everybody's attention is turned outward than when it's turned inward on arguments about who has what desk and who gets what parking place.
0: The, uh, this urbanity that Buckley brought to the world of Catholic apologetics, to conservative apologetics, to engaging uh the problems of liberalism really from the cold war forward i mean so he he dealt with communism he dealt with socialism he dealt with the american cath uh, american political left as it became radicalized post govern democratic party and so forth but this marvelous ability of his to maintain friendships with for example with john kenneth galbraith and have these people on his show and really argue publicly in a way that, in, in in a good humored but actually, uh, informative way, I don't see that anywhere today. Do you? No.
1: That's, we, I mean, we began our discussion today talking about the uh, failures of and the problems with journalism that covers Catholicism. Right. And this is a perfect example of what we don't have. Buckley brought this cool star power to it. Even if on firing line, he mostly used Malcolm Muggeridge as the designated Catholic commentator.
0: Right. <laughs> uh,
1: but but still, Buckley. You know, Buckley. I mean, he was such a star. There are these pictures of him deal from the from the early days, and, you know, he's striding down an aisle of an auditorium to give a lecture, and we have one picture in particular, he and his wife, and she, they're both young, they're both interesting-looking, they're both tall and thin. She has this leopard-skin pillbox hat on, and they look like stars, Uh, And he brought that to conservatism, and it was a really wonderful thing. But, you know, we don't have anybody like that. And given the bifurcations and the animosities and, as I argue in my book, the the spiritually charged anxieties of our present culture, I don't see any way that we could have someone like that today.
0: Is that because the, the audience isn't there who would enjoy it? or that none of the major networks would see the use of it?
1: I I think in particular it's simply that the cultural space for it is closed, and that's reflected in the trouble you would have finding an audience who didn't want to uh, condemn or embrace it in partisan ways. You have trouble finding that space, or you, you see the trouble finding that space in the fact that no network would do this. You you know, it's just the the combination, the unique combination of audience and uh, uh, producers of this kind of material has disappeared, and you can't create it just for the wishing of it.
0: Boy, I miss it. You know, but I think you know. In you know, I think that uh, the kind of conversation we're having now, frankly, is what is missing and I, I don't mean to pat myself on the back or you but uh there's only so much fox news i can hear uh there's so much so much rush limbaugh or anyone else that kind of constant uh uh yelling or that kind of constant complaint or that constant you know our country's uh destroying itself and it's not going to exist in hundred years or this fall of the Roman Empire whatever truth that is there is in that is, fi- is, is fine but it's the tone, the screechy tone that just drives me nuts
1: yeah and you know I mean Rush Limbaugh is a genius a, uh, a media genius uh, and I have enormous admiration for that genius but uh, whether he's symptom or cause uh you know the the partisanizing of uh, of american public discourse has gotten so bad that i just you know i can barely pay attention to any of it i'm, I'm like you deal i get you know it's like fingernails on a blackboard after a while
0: I, I think what you and i have in common there jody is that we're both uh literary guys too and arts guys and 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 academic philosophy and so forth. And the world is bigger than this. I mean, the, the there is uh, our additional interests and our additional areas of expertise uh, don't dispose us to be screechy about anything except maybe a really good novel.
1: <laughs> well, there's also this, I mean, I, I, I do want to return one last time to this spiritualizing of our cultural scene.
0: This is from your As book. These
1: ideas broke out of the main line mm-hmm. and infested us. Uh, I see in the book, and I, it's a line that I, that I keep repeating, but I, I think it deserves repeating. We live in an age of spiritual anxiety. How could you imagine that we didn't live in such an age, so spiritualized, when we imagine that our ordinary political opponents are not merely mistaken, but actually evil? Well, that that yeah. view has infected everyone across the board.
0: You know, I remember back in the 2008 presidential campaign that elected Barack Obama to his first term, that I believe it was U.S. News kept a, a Godometer meter that was a daily record of which candidates and how often they referred to God. You know who won that?
1: No, Obama. Oh uh, yeah,
0: he referred to God and his faith much more. I mean, by a good length over anyone else that was in that uh, presidential race.
1: I think you're you're absolutely right, Deal. Uh, Obama deployed that rhetoric a lot, but you know, other candidates did too. And what we see in this loops back to the whole reason we're having this conversation about Catholic journalism today, which is to say religious journalism in general and Catholic journalism in particular has really failed us. They failed us in the 2008 election, they failed us in 2012, and they're failing us today. The partisanship of everything has eaten up the kind of journalism that we clearly need to move forward.
0: Thank you, Jody.
1: Thank you for having me, Deal.
0: And please uh, come back and join me again on Church and Culture uh, at this time and on this day next week. If you have any comments or questions about Church and Culture, you can contact
1: Deal Hudson at Hudson at avemariaradio.net.